Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I'm joined by my co-host, Charlene Chang, Director of Strategic Communications for Democracy in Color, book editor of Brown is the New White, and mom to the perpetually curious Kaylee. Hi, Charlene. Hey, Steve. I just want to take a minute to thank everyone who helped with the launch of this podcast over the past two weeks by listening, subscribing, and promoting us. Our interview with Stacey Abrams is on track to be in the top 20% of all podcasts in the country for this month, and our Iowa and impeachment episodes are also doing very well. We're super grateful for all the help and support, and we're fired up and excited about where we go from here. So what do we have for our listeners today, Charlene? Yes, uh, before I get into that, I also wanted to take this moment just to thank everyone who downloaded our first three episodes and tuned in. I wanted to give a really big shout out to all of you. We're feeling really grateful. We could not be doing this without you. Today, we're excited to talk with Tim Wise, an author and one of the country's leading anti-racist educators, about this political moment. What we can learn from his experiences working on a campaign to, f- to defeat an actual former member of the KKK, a former Grand Wizard, in fact, of the KKK, David Duke, and that was in 1990 and 1991. And we're going to hear from Tim about his experience and what that experience can teach us today as we work to oust Trump. We have an audio clip of Duke from 1992 Remember, this is a man who almost became a U.S. senator or governor in Louisiana in 1990 and 1991. Well, I would would like to ask for an apology, and I would certainly like to ask people time, because I am not a racist. I think that all people on this earth and in this country are proud of their particular heritage. I think black people are. I think all the ethnic groups, religious groups are. And I'm proud of my heritage, but I do not believe in what racism is, and that's oppressing people, or causing hatred toward people, or trying to deny the rights of people. And I think the real racists today in our society are those who are pushing these so-called affirmative action programs, quota systems, and other affirmative action where people are discriminated against on the basis of their race. That's got to end, and that's the real racism that dominates our society. David Brinkley lied. David, I, I will not say someone lied, but David Brinkley is mistaken if he calls me a racist. Oh, that's interesting. There's definitely so many parallels to what's happening today. And that ties into what we're going to talk about today. We'll be talking with our guest, Tim Wise. Tim is among the most prominent anti-racism writers and educators in this country. As I said, he is the host of the podcast, Speak Out with Tim Wise. And a few months ago, he wrote a really provocative and compelling Twitter thread about how Democrats were failing to grasp the essence of Trumpism and how to defeat that presidency in this moment. Uh, By the way, that thread was retweeted, I believe, 21,000 times. Yeah, that totally caught my attention, uh, that Twitter thread. I was blowing up our Slack channels and sharing with everybody because there's so much pandering to white voters, but very little actual analysis rooted in real experience. And so Tim's experience was really, you know, on point. And I was thrilled to see it turned into a Washington Post piece and very eager to get him on the podcast uh, with us to discuss these issues. I've known of Tim for years. I'm delighted to finally meet and have this conversation. So thanks for joining us, Tim. Uh, You bet. Thank you for having me. 
So I'm uh, eager ultimately to get your thoughts about this current impeachment moment and the competing dynamics of patriotism and, and white supremacy. Sure. But let, let's sure. first ground this conversation in your experiences working to defeat uh, David Duke, right, who, sure. a Klansman who almost got elected to the Senate in 1990. And I'm embarrassed to say that only was when I read your, your Twitter thread that I had actually forgotten about the Duke campaigns. And I lived through that time <laughs> period. And I'm sure well, that some of our younger listeners may not even know who he is. So can sure. you give us some background on who he is? Sure. Well, you can be forgiven for forgetting about it. Um, a lot of people probably did. Those of us who were in the midst of it, of course, it was really formative for um, the rest, has been for the rest of our lives. It certainly has been for me. Mm -hmm. um, for those who don't know, I mean, David Duke, if you had to sort of pick the, the nation's most prominent overt white supremacist or neo-Nazi, I, I shouldn't even say neo because that suggests that he had thought of something actually new. Uh, he's actually pretty Jurassic in his Nazism, pretty old school, but um David Duke would be really the most prominent of those in the last half century. He started doing white supremacist and Nazi activism uh, even before he was in the Klan in the late 60s and around 1970 when he was a college student. He later took over and became head of the largest uh, Klan organization in the United States in the 1970s. He left that in 1980, founded a group called the National Association for the Advancement of White People because apparently the Chamber of Commerce and the Fraternal Order of Police were not enough. Right. Um, and uh, it too was a white supremacist group and a neo-Nazi group that advocated the creation of a master race, advocated the separation of the American North American continent into um, various sub-nations based on race. And, uh, you know, he would launch various campaigns. He ran for state house or state senate in Louisiana several times. Uh, and then beginning in the late 80s, he started running for just about everything. So he ran for president in the 1988 election, actually as a Democrat first, oh, wow. and then as a member of the Populist Party, which was sort of an amalgam of far right, white supremacist, neo-Nazi organizations and individuals. Um, and then he ran, obviously not succeeding in that race, turned around, became a Republican, started running first for the state house in Louisiana. He won that election by 247 votes, mm. became a state lawmaker in Louisiana. Uh, from that perch, he ran for Senate and then for governor. And each of his campaigns, whether it was the 88 presidential, the 89 state house, the 90 Senate, US Senate, or the 91 Louisiana governor's race, all the campaigns were sort of predicated on the same thing, trying to mainstream the hatred that had been part of his shtick for, at that point, uh, a little over 20 years, he, you know, every, every political theme, every platform position was about racial resentment and mm -hmm. pushing buttons of white racial anxiety. So it was all about, you know, getting black people off welfare and stopping affirmative action and, and, um, you know, anti-immigration and anti-busing and, and get tough on crime. All of it sort of intended to conjure up the image of black folks who were taking things from, or in some way harming white folks in the state of Louisiana. And in the Senate race, uh, keeping in mind now that he's already won the state house race by 247 votes, he he runs for the U.S. Senate in 1990. He gets six out of 10 white voters, 60 percent of the white vote loses, but uh, still 44 percent of the overall vote, which was uh, obviously frightening. He then runs for governor, gets 39 percent of the overall vote. So not as well, didn't do as well, but he still got 55 percent of all white votes, which is to say 
that the majority of, of white people in Louisiana uh, were more than willing to vote for someone who they knew was an overt white supremacist right. and, and, and Nazi. It's not like they didn't know. Right. Uh, they knew full well and they ultimately didn't care. And so it was it was an interesting lesson. And we'll talk about that, obviously, what those lessons were. Yeah. So I want to I want to jump into the, those campaigns a little bit more in a, in a second is that it, I didn't actually even realize so I was work, researching my book just how conservative Louisiana's white voting population is, right? I mean, it's that it was the second most anti-Obama state in the whole country in terms of the white vote. Right. It got just 14% of the vote there um, right. compared to 11% in, in Mississippi. Right. So you guys formed the Louisiana Coalition Against Racism and Nazism. So what was that and how did that come about? So the organization came out of um, some some grassroots activism that had begun around the time that David was running for the state house. Um, there was a guy who was a graduate student friend of mine. I was an undergrad at Tulane at the time in New Orleans, and a guy by the name of Lance Hill, who was a graduate student in the history department at Tulane, um, had dug up a lot of material on Duke, both Klan-related material from those days, but also was one of the few people who I think probably had ever read every you know issue of the National Association for the Advancement of White People newsletter. And he put this stuff together as a way to sort of get information to the media as Duke was running for the state house about David's ongoing extremism. Because, you know, his argument was, well, I quit the Klan, you know, uh, several years ago and I left all that behind. But the NAAWP was really the Klan without robe or ritual. In fact, it was called that by one of its active members. Um, and so Lance was trying to get that information out. Obviously, it did not stop Duke from winning the state house race. But shortly thereafter, a group of individuals uh, across the political spectrum, I should point out, um, there were Republicans and Democrats and independents involved in this. People uh, across the spectrum formed a coalition uh, headed up by a minister from the Baton Rouge area. Uh, Lance became the executive director of the organization. I became the campus coordinator for the college network of anti-Duke groups and then later associate director. And our job, we were officially a PAC, uh, which we had to be obviously to, to be involved in electoral campaigns. Um, and the purpose of our PAC was first to obviously derail Duke's candidacy by exposing his ongoing extremism and his agenda uh, and and what was wrong with that, obviously. But um, but also, as the name implied, right, was to fight the broader problem of racism and and Nazism or white supremacism within American politics. So it was always we always conceived of it as a two step goal. One was obviously defeating Duke. But secondly, was really laying the groundwork for for a strategy to defeat the politics of racism and white supremacy in America. Right. And so your, your your tweets and your article were about the differences in the strategy in terms of explicitly tackling uh, the issue of racism. Can you talk about that in terms of what it was like the first campaign and then how and why you shifted into the second one? Sure. Well, from the very beginning, when David even won the state house seat, there were always these debates, a lot of them among media people, about how much they should really talk about David's racism and Nazism. There was a fear that if you talk about it, it just gives him more publicity. So let's not talk about it, you know, and that clearly didn't work. Duke won the state house race. And, and in the first several months of the Senate race, the media was still very reluctant. Yeah, they would, they would obviously talk about the Klan stuff because mm -hmm. that was, that was publicly known. And there were visuals of him in Klan robes, but they, they really missed the bigger point, which was, you can't just talk about the Klan. You had to talk about the neo-Nazism. You had to talk about the connections to overt admirers of Adolf Hitler. You had to talk about his ongoing affiliations. And they just seemed either reluctant or unable to really do that. So our thing was, you know, we need to talk about that. Now, the problem 
was that being a coalition and, and people who've done coalition politics know this, you got a lot of different voices pulling you in different directions. Right. And those voices have very different ideas about strategy. And some of those voices have pretty deep pockets mm -hmm. and they want to go in a particular direction. So within our coalition, um, I would say that the majority of us were pretty clear. We need to talk about the politics of white supremacy and racism and the racial scapegoating that Duke was uh, involved in trying to blame black people for all the problems of the state that they were not to blame for, right? They weren't to blame for high taxes. They weren't to blame for crime. They weren't to blame for the state of the economy. There were a lot of other larger things going on, but there were people within our coalition who were very afraid. These were some of the more conservative folks within the coalition, mm -hmm. uh, were very afraid of tackling that. Uh, one person famously said, well, we need racists to vote against David Duke too. You know, so you don't wow. want to make him too mad, right? So they would they would counsel caution. You know, they didn't say avoid it altogether because they knew that wasn't realistic. Mm -hmm. But their argument was you need to talk about other things. And some of the things that, you know, were dug up during that time were the fact that David Duke had lied about um, service during Vietnam. He never said he was in the military, but he said he went and he did like undercover CIA Air America rice drops wow. to, you know, troops behind enemy lines in Laos, which was just not true. He went over there on a vacation to visit his dad, who was in the Corps of Engineers. I mean, he did he did no such thing. But um, but he said that, of course, we knew that was a lie. And, and there were people in the coalition who said, Oh, talk about that. Talk about how he dodged the draft or or talk about how he, you know, for three years didn't pay his taxes. And and those of us who were progressive within the coalition, our argument was, yeah, but, you know, the problem is if you got a guy who's a Nazi and you're going to talk about tax evasion, you're making those se things seem equivalent and they're just not. And it undermines the moral case. Right. right? It's like saying Al Capone's a murderer. But, you know, that tax thing. Right. right, right. And so so it just it, it seemed to us that it weakened the case. But the problem was some of these voices were pretty powerful. They held sway. They had some deep pockets. They had some consultants who actually came in. And and that was the argument they made. And I should point out, these consultants were not right wing or Republican. These were Democratic Party consultants, right. one of whom has now abandoned in in every way the Democratic Party. So there's a long history behind him. And we won't get into who that is. But but this these were people who said, yeah, yeah, don't talk about Nazism. And they had this research they did that they thought justified that approach. Now, we looked at the research. It didn't. They were actually misrepresenting their own research. But what they were arguing was, don't talk about racism. We need racists to vote against Duke. Talk about taxes. And, and unfortunately, in that first race, that Senate race, you know, we sort of blended the approach. We, right. we sort of reached a compromise, right? So we ran these commercials. And yeah, it talked about the fact that like David Duke had just been caught selling Nazi books out of his legislative office, books that denied the Holocaust. There was a book called The Hitler We Loved and Why. So we talked about that, obviously. But then like right after that, in the commercial, which is like a 60 second ad, we would say, you know, and by the way, he, you know, lied about serving in Vietnam or mm -hmm. didn't pay his taxes. And it was just a weird, messed up kind of message. Right. And I think it, it made people think, well, wait a minute now, you know, if this guy's a Nazi, why are they talking about all this other stuff? Right. It almost makes it seem like they're desperate, right? Like they're, and that's what he would say. Duke's response was, they're just trying to throw everything at me. They're saying all these things because they know that they, they know that I'm right about the issues, blah, blah, blah. And so in that race, I really feel, and I think most of us uh, ultimately felt as though muddling that message reduced the moral case against Duke as an individual and Dukeism as a movement, and it didn't help us. I mean, in the end, he got six out of 10 white votes. So I don't think we moved a lot of, a lot of people with that approach. 
Um, as a result, when the governor's race comes around, we, the we really had the next year he ran the very for governor. next year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the very next year we realized, look, this just isn't going to work. So we didn't use the same consultants. We didn't listen to the people. We actually sort of pushed out of the way some of those people in the coalition who'd been pushing us in that more conservative direction. And we said, you know what, we're going to make the moral case that this is that Louisiana is better than this, that we deserve better than this, that we're not a bunch of hateful people, that the politics of prejudice is not only morally wrong, but it practically won't solve our problems. It is just about scapegoating and, and blame shifting instead of dealing with the problems that face all of us. And granted, now, Duke still got 55% of the vote. He actually got 70,000 more votes in that race than he did in the Senate race. But what happened that's very important to point out is that that moral approach, that clear crisp approach that said this is wrong and we deserve better actually then drove turnout among black folks, among white progressives, and they went to the polls. So yeah, Duke got more votes than before, but the anti-Duke turnout was massive mm. in that in that next election. There were tons of people in between the primary and the runoff in just a one month period who went and registered. One day there were 27,000 new black registrations alone in one day during wow. that month. The lesson from that for us was that when you're up against someone whose entire politic is about bigotry, right. you can't approach them like a normal politician. You have to you have to take aim specifically at the moral rot, at the existential threat mm -hmm. that this politic poses in that case to Louisiana, but now I would argue to the country as a whole. So Tim, thanks for sharing that with us, fascinating history, and um, I wanted to ask you, let's fast forward and let's talk about how this applies to today as we head towards 2020. You wrote in a recent Washington Post piece that there's a real danger of normalizing the racist. Let us uh, explain to us, what did you mean by that? Well, when you run against someone like Donald Trump, who, and let me first say, I'm fully aware Donald Trump is not David Duke. Uh, there is a fundamental difference between David Duke, who is a legitimate Nazi, and Donald Trump, who is more than willing to use racism and white supremacist themes and language to attain and to maintain power. Do I think Donald Trump is a racist? Personally, yes, but he's not a David Duke kind of racist. I think Donald Trump is primarily a Trumpist. He believes in himself, and if racism and white supremacy will help him, he will use those things, and that's what he's done. So I realize there's a distinction, but the similarity is, that here is someone whose entire politic really, from the time he came down that elevator or that escalator and gave that press conference talking about Mexicans, right. uh, everything that he has done has really substantively been about the other, the danger of the other. In fact, you could say birtherism with Obama was about that too, right? right. His forays into politics have consistently been about the non-white other, whether it's Barack Obama, whether it's the Chinese and trade, whether it's Mexicans coming across the border, whether it's black folks in the cities who he thinks should be profiled and stopped and frisked. That's what he said during the campaign. Everything has been about that. And so the, the danger, I think, is that when you when you try to take him on the way that Democratic candidates, I fear, are doing currently, which is look at my plan for this and my plan for this and my, my, my strategy for this. And here's my 10 point approach to infrastructure. And here's my tax proposal. And here's my proposal for broadband access in rural America. I mean, mm -hmm. all of that is really nice. And, and we need candidates who have those plans. But when you when you approach Trump, 
who is not who did not get support because people sat down and looked at his plans and said, oh, well, I totally am behind this guy. That's not what his voters voted for. His voters didn't get behind him because they had studied his website. His voters got behind him because he hates who they hate. And mm. every single study done since 2016 says it wasn't economic anxiety or if it was, it was economic anxiety connected to the belief that those people were the cause of of my economic anxiety. Right. So you can't so you can't separate the economic anxiety from the cultural, racial, identity-based anxiety. And when you when you try to treat him like any other Republican and you know, my plan's better than your plan and I can raise the money we need for this and you can't, you are normalizing him. And when you normalize him, you make it a lot easier for people to vote for him um, because they figure that there's no moral cost in doing so. And obviously the people who already voted for him already have said there's no moral cost in doing so. And I got news for you. They ain't going to change. 91% of the people who voted for David Duke in 1990 voted for him again in 1991. And the reason is once I have voted for a monster, my willingness to admit that I voted for a monster is virtually nil. There's too much psychological cost for me to make a shift. So all this all this rhetoric about how, oh, we're going to get Trump voters to switch, the odds are you are not going to get more than a statistical handful of them to switch. So I wanted to, I wanted to kind of dive into that psychology as we look at this whole impeachment moment and kind of tap your expertise sure. on this, right? As, the, as you said on the Chelsea Handler uh, special, you've been white a long time. You've been studying white yeah, people. Yeah, <laughs> So there's been a shift in the poll. I mean, people of color have been supporting impeachment all along. But there's right. been a shift in the past couple months among white voters to a higher level of support. And so it really does kind of, to me, escalate. The, and it's fascinating to me to see all these different uh, diplomats who are coming forward are all white. So it right. does seem like there's some level of tension or competition between patriotism and white supremacy. Yeah. With all of the facts being so clear now, particularly with the recent testimony of you know Ambassador Taylor. So I'm curious how you see this playing itself out as it becomes more crystal clear what he has done. How, right. do, how do you think white voters and white people are going to process this and respond to this going forward? Well, I mean, I think a couple of things. I think, first of all, uh, obviously, the, the revelations of the really the extortion attempt by the president uh, uh, of the United States uh, with regard to the president of the Ukraine is obviously going to ramp up the opposition that was already there to Trump because it's a very crystal clear story. It's a lot it's a lot simpler sort of a one or two step process as opposed to the Russia story, which was more complicated, um, even though there's plenty of evidence there of obstruction of justice and other things. It's a lot more complicated story. You know, it's sort of like trying to explain Iran Contra to people that didn't remember that from the 80s. And it's a lot of steps. Right. Ukraine's a very easy story. So, number one, you're going to have more opposition there. I think it's also easier for soft Republican voters uh, and for independents to, to to hear this story and just go, OK, this is exhausting. You know, this guy is clearly everything is about self-dealing. So I believe we're going to continue to see the polls likely move in that direction, especially because this is a guy who has no self-control, no self-regulatory button. So he's going to continue to spew nonsense. And you're going to have people like the congresspersons today who you know decided to storm the Republicans who stormed a committee meeting uh, of a committee they're not even members of because right. they apparently feel entitled to be in there. Uh, 
uh, and they're going to try you know, but they, they're not entitled to be in there. They're not members of that committee. If any Democrats had tried to do that during the Benghazi hearings, they would have been thrown out on their ear, wouldn't have even tried it um, if they tried to come into a committee room that they didn't belong to. So they're going to do all this theater. And, and I think it's just not working. It's very clear that the Teflon is starting to crack. Now, here's the here's the the strategy, though, right? Because on the one hand, look, I think this could bring down Trump. And I think that's if that's what does it, that is fantastic. I'm, I'm more than happy to have that be the case. If he is so careless as to have engaged in extortion, uh, let that be the thing that brings him down. I'm fine with that. But but this is the what I was trying to convey in that thread and in the Washington Post piece and what I learned in the anti-Duke work. You can probably beat Duke or Trump either then or now with a number of strategies. After all, we did beat Duke the first time, even though the strategy was muddled. Mm -hmm. But Dukeism was not defeated. That's why we had to fight again. I think you can probably beat Trump with a number of different approaches. You could probably beat Trump right now with an approach that focused on corruption and the self-dealing with regard to the Ukraine story as a focus. You could probably beat Trump with a really good plan for several different policies. When I made fun of the whole idea of plans a minute ago, I'm not saying that that wouldn't potentially work. Maybe it would. But I don't think either of those strategies alone will suffice to really defeat or or make a big dent in Trumpism. And my concern is, what is 2020 about? This is a question I want Democratic voters and independents and, and, and even you know moderate Republicans to ask, is it enough to just beat Trump? Because my fear is if, if he is either removed or loses, let's say in 2020, and that isn't at least in part because America says enough of this racial scapegoating, enough of this Muslim bashing, enough of this of this anti-pluralistic sentiment, then I'm afraid Trumpism lives to fight another day. And someone who's a lot smarter and not nearly as much of a grifter as Donald Trump is going to come along with the same politics and he's going to end up being able to do much more damage. The, the one thing that's minimized Trump's damage is his utter incompetence right. as an administrator. But if we don't defeat Trumpism, there's someone coming later who isn't as much of a bigot as Duke and isn't as much of a con man as Trump. And so that's why we have to do more than just defeat him. So on, the, on this, I want to understand, go a little further on this question around the psychology and the motivations of these some sector of these white voters, right? Clearly, yeah. some people took a chance on Trump. They excused whatever his, his you know, excesses were in 2016. But right. I'm trying to grapple with how deep or powerful is this notion of patriotism, but country first as a value vis-a-vis -vis these fears and insecurities that the country is being taken over by these people of color and immigrants, et cetera. How do you see that reconciling right. itself in people's minds as we go forward, particularly as we head towards impeachment with a very right. strong evidentiary basis that he has right. betrayed the country? Well, let's be very clear. I think that for an awful lot of white people, um, patriotism love of country is about love of a white country. And a lot of Trump's supporters conceive of America fundamentally as a white country, uh, which is why they have such a hard time getting their heads around the demographic and cultural changes that are underway right now. And one of the primary drivers for support for Trump is this cultural fear and anxiety at 
quote unquote, losing the America we once knew, right? The whole the whole slogan of make America great again is a nostalgic reference, right? It's all about going back to something that for them they think was quite great, even though obviously it wasn't so um, objectively great for, for people of color or poor folks of all colors or LGBTQ folk or all kinds of other folks, right? But but so number one, I, for them, you know, for, for Trump people, patriotism to them is standing up for Trump because mm -hmm. to them, Trump is representative of the America that they know and love. The right. question is whether the rest of us who take a more capacious, multicultural, pluralistic understanding of of America are prepared to stand up for that version of America. This really is, it comes down to a warring conception of what this country is going to stand for. Are we going to be the country that we said we were for the last 200 plus years, but never were? Are we going to become that country? Are we going to, as James Baldwin said, achieve our country as a concept? Or are we going to defend this nostalgic, fictive notion of America as this, you know, thing that existed for white people and straight Christians in the 1950s. The question for us is what do they do when they see their power shrink? And, and my fear, and I think it's worth all of our thinking about, is I don't really expect people who have defined America as them and people like them for years to just go quietly. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have to be prepared for, unfortunately, some of the really hostile stuff that we've been seeing during the course of this presidency, probably ramped up even further. The only way we're going to defeat that, though, is with a positive pluralistic, multicultural notion of American democracy. We have to have a vision of the country that is as compelling as theirs. And I think we have that, but we have to be leading with that and not afraid to, to insist upon it. Right. Okay, thanks, Tim. So usually on our show, because we're often tackling some pretty tough topics like we did today, we like to end on a lighter, kind of more fun and personal note. And we end it with a question, a kind of a personal question. And so the question I want to ask, and all three of us will answer, so I'll answer and Steve okay. and then you, uh, is the question that I have today is, when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? And Steve, so again, you'll go first, and we'll give Tim a chance to think about his answer, and then I'll go, and then we can, we'll end with Tim. Uh, for me, it, it was being a doctor, right? My dad's a doctor, um, just retired at 87 years old. Shout out, Dad, uh, from Baylor Medical School in in, uh, in Texas. And then when I was in high school in Cleveland um, at, at Hawken, um, I did a six-week senior project that was working every single day with a surgeon, a vascular surgeon, Dr. Slesh, who's the father of one of my friends. And I would scrub up every day, be in the operating room. I stapled a couple people together after surgery. I actually did one incision that he actually had me do. And my mom loved it. She would always say, Stephen is going to be in surgery tomorrow. Um, so I was kind of on that track. But then I took organic chemistry in college. And that's when I realized I should be a writer and an activist <laughs> instead. Uh, for me, when, when I was a kid, I, I did actually want to be a writer. And a journalist. I remember I have drew, drew little pictures of myself writing, and you know, a picture of myself on TV because I saw journalists on TV. But I ended up being a newspaper reporter, and so I feel really lucky because I got to do both of those things. But I do also remember that I definitely also wanted to be a rock star. I wanted to be <laughs> Pat Benatar, like that kind of rock star, so badly. And sadly, that was definitely not in the cards for me. But how about you, Tim? 
Well, I don't know how long you got. Let me let me let me break it <laughs> as I can. Well, the reason I want to tell you this story is it's not only I guess an interesting story, but it it actually sort of circles back to some of the work that I do and the point that I always try to make. Um, so when I was a kid, I was sports obsessed. I was a jock. I was a baseball player principally. Uh, I'd been a, a pretty good basketball player until I hit that age where everybody kept getting taller and I didn't. And so when you, when you, when you end up five, eight, you ain't going to be a, a, a basketball player. Right. But, but I was really good at baseball. And, um, when I was in little league, you know, I would have college, uh, recruiters who were actually watching my little league game. So I was, I was in, uh, of the, um, under the impression that that was going to be my path, right. That I was going to go to college and play ball, maybe even play pro ball. Um, and then something really interesting happened and sent me in a different direction which goes to show a lot about how the world works. Um, so I, I tried out for my high school team and I was trying out against guys that I had played against in, uh, you know, Babe Ruth League and Little League for years. And I was as good or better than they were. But I just had a terrible tryout. You know, sometimes it happens and just awful tryout. I don't know if I was just nervous or whatever, but I got cut. And as a result of being cut, which at the moment was like a crushing thing, uh, I had to find a different activity. Right. And um, so my activity ended up being competitive debate. And so I become <laughs> a debater. Right. Uh, no surprise there. I become a debater um, and we get out on the national circuit. We were pretty good. I end up going to a debate camp in Washington, D.C. at American University between the summer, the summer between my junior and senior year. And while I'm there, uh, I, I meet a girl from Lafayette, Louisiana. Uh, we start dating. She convinces me because clearly I was uh, a, a very, <laughs> a very easily swayed 16, 17 year old boy. She convinces me that I have to go to Tulane in New Orleans for college. I wasn't thinking about Tulane. I was thinking about Emory in Atlanta. I was going to go there and debate. I was being recruited by the coach. They were going to give me a scholarship, but I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll go to, I'll go to Tulane. Sure. You know, cause I'm changed my whole life trajectory because I thought I was in love with this girl. So I go to Tulane in new Orleans and keep in mind how important that is. If I don't go to Tulane, I'm not going to meet the two men, one, the graduate student and the other, a history professor of mine who started that anti David Duke organization. I'm not going to get that job right out of college at a very high level doing anti-racism work against David Duke, which those two or three years was one of the biggest profile race stories in America. And I'm probably not going to do what I'm doing right now. And the reason that's such a, to me, an important story, it's not just that it's, it's not about me. It's really about the fact that so much of where we end up, all of us, right, is about circumstance and luck. And we don't like to admit that we want, you know, we live in a culture that says if you're successful, you should take credit because you did it on your own and you should believe in rugged individualism. But the truth is, irrespective of whatever talents I might have, speaker, writer, all those things, if you don't have certain things happen in your life, you're not going to be in a position to take advantage of those things. I think if we could all be more humble about how we got from point A to point B to point C, we would have a much more just and equitable society, right? Because if I admit that where I am is about my connections, about people I've been lucky enough to meet, things that I've been lucky enough to experience, if I admit that, it's really hard to look down on other people who haven't succeeded yet, right? right. Because I know I could be them. And they could be me. And so I, I tell that story, not just because I'm, you know, trying to work therapeutically through getting cut from the baseball team, but but as a way to say as a way to say everyone, like, think deeply about how you ended up where you are, because right. we all had help. We all had luck. And even sometimes in the face of bad luck, like getting cut from that team, windows open, doors open that we're able to walk through. But we don't walk through them alone. And I think that's an important lesson to keep in mind. Great. 
Thanks so much, Tim. Okay, so that's all the time we have now. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Thank you to our special guest today, Tim Wise. You can follow Tim on Twitter at, at Tim Jacob Wise, where his Twitter bio says that make America great for the first time. Uh, please help us get the word out about this new podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier, recorded at the podcast studio San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.